Hello and welcome to the Back to Work Connect podcast. I'm Gina Oglesby, CEO and founder of Back to Work Connect, an education and employment career hub designed to get returners and career changers back to work. In each episode, we'll discuss topics that are important to you, including financial well-being, mental health, and the supports available to help you get back to work. In this episode, we are joined by Anif Burka, founder and CEO of Sprout Plans, to discuss the topic of money and relationships. You're very welcome, Neve. Thanks, Gina. Thanks for having me today. So today, Neve, we're going to talk about money and relationships, how to navigate sometimes uh, prickly subjects and what we need to know about our partner's finances and also what we don't know about them. Yes, Gina, this is a very important subject. One, I think, that has probably caused a fight in every single household in the country, one that is avoided by many people and one that is misunderstood by many people. Today, relationships are cohabiting couples. They are married people. They are people who are separated or divorced and they are bereaved people. So there's all sorts of different relationships that we need to think about and the varying different financial consequences and management of these relationships. So tell me, Neve, what do we need to know about our partner's finances? So I think, Gina, you know, we first of all, we need to respect that each other are individuals as well as being in a couple. And I think that's really the crux of a lot of conflict that I see. Oftentimes there can be an imbalance of earnings. Maybe one person doesn't earn at all. Maybe one person is a spender and one person is a saver. So these are types of areas that that cause conflict. But we need to respect each other. We need to respect that before we came into this relationship, we could spend our money however we wanted to. And it's so important for our wellness that we feel that we have the ability, the freedom to still make some spending decisions on our own without being asked, why did you spend that money or where did that money go? But at the same time, we can't be in a position where we're spending all the money that we need to pay the bills. So I think really, you know, I describe it as financial independence. Now, financial independence in its true self is really about having sufficient finances to support your lifestyle without the need to work. That's the the target that we all aim for. But financial independence, when we're on our way to there, is about having access to our own money. I heard it described as runaway money once. It doesn't necessarily need to be full on running away money, but you need to be able to have your own money that you can access without asking permission for. But at the same time, you need to contribute to the household. So what I would suggest, first of all, in a non-confrontational manner, It's important to understand at a high level, what are the inflows into the household? What does she earn and what do do you earn? You know, what money is coming in? Okay, we start there. And, you know, maybe that money should go into your own individual accounts. Then we should need to understand what are all the expenses, the joint expenses that come out of the house? So mortgage or rent, paying bills, shopping bills, looking after children. I would regularly see that, you know, a couple might say, well, I'm going to pay the mortgage and you can pay for the, the, the childcare or you can pay for the children's education. But by separating the, the, the individual costs like that, you regularly see an imbalance. So children can cost more than a mortgage or they could cost less. But when you add on childcare, it, it means that it's not necessarily equitable. Whereas if you group all of this and you say, okay, our total outgoings for the household is two and a half thousand a month, we'll just say. 
And make sure you include in there the grocery bills, the children's shoes. You know, it's both of your responsibility to pay for the children's shoes. It's not one or the other. So group all of those into a pot and then work out an equitable arrangement to finance that pot. So say one party earns twice as much as the other. Well, then maybe one party contributes twice as much as the other into this fund. But it's important then that you both retain your own income to spend. And with that income, then it's important to think, okay, I have this. This is the excess income every month. So from that, I'm going to take direct some of it and I'm going to put towards my pension or I'm going to put towards life, life cover, you know, thinking about the bigger financial picture. But some of it you're going to say, I'm going to use that 200 euros to spend it as I want. If I want to buy a posh coffee, I will buy a posh coffee and I will not be asking permission for it. That, you know, that's that's the crux of it. No matter what your relationship status is, whether you're civil, civil partnership, married or cohabiting, if you're contributing to a joint arrangement, it needs to be fair and equitable. And in that joint account, you both have oversight. But. One party doesn't have oversight of, of the other person's account. That's the financial independence I'm talking about. Yeah, I, th- I think that it's a really um, emotive topic. Um, we often hear about economic abuse and the, you know, the levels that exist. And, uh, and it's actually quite scary uh, how that, you know, the power to buy something for yourself can be taken away. And I think in financial independence is a hugely important thing, particularly for women. So do you think, Niamh, that there should be a minimum amount that you keep to yourself? Um, I know if two, you know, if two people in a, a relationship are in different amounts, should you have a minimum that you get to keep yourself just for your own protection? It's hard, Gina, to, to, to say, oh, yes, well, you should keep exactly this amount. And I think that's why I discussed the idea of contributing to the joint outgoings on a, a prorated type basis. You know, it still might mean if one person's earning 100,000 and one person's earning 20,000, it still means the person on 20,000, even if they're contributing 50%, say, they're only left with 10, whereas the other person is left with 50. And, you know, with that, it should be a minimum that it's equitably put in. I have personal concerns when I see the person on 20 spending all their money on maintaining the household and the person on 50 accumulating net worth in their own sole name. But, it, but it, you know, it is a, it's a huge area for conflict. And I think knowing that and acknowledging that the children's shoes are a joint responsibility certainly helps to, to limit that. Now, not all relationships are like that. You know, there are many relationships where she may be the main breadwinner and she's happy to pay for it all. But she should still, she should still retain something for herself, just for her own self, self-worth. But on that note, it's also very important to have a joint account where you accumulate assets, especially if there's children involved in the relationship. Now, this is where it can become quite complex, but it's very important. So if you are in a civil partnership or you are in a marriage, if you have a joint account, so joint, anything that's joint, it falls outside the estate, it's called. So essentially, you know, you may decide that you have 50,000 euros of excess cash and you may agree to put this in a joint account that doesn't have any cards on it. And if one party to the relationship becomes ill, say they're, gosh, use an awful example, COVID, and they go into a coma. If you can't access their money, if you can't access that net worth, how are you going to pay for the family 
while they're in the, co- the coma and recuperating, or even worse, if they pass away, how are you going to pay for their funeral? You know, that's an incentive sometimes to keep money in a joint account that you can access it to pay for things until life cover and things like that kick in. So in if you are in a marriage or a civil partnership and you have a joint account, preferably with less than 50,000 in it because it becomes a little bit more complicated if it, if it has more than 50,000 in it, you can still access that account should they die or become incapacitated for whatever reason to pay for the initial emergency things. But I have seen people keeping their finances so totally separate that if one party was to die, they wouldn't be able to afford to bury them. So a joint account is very important. Now, if you are a cohabiting couple, it becomes even more complicated because there must be a grant of probate. You need to write to the revenue and get a grant of probate before you can distribute the estate. Even if that person has left their entire estate to you in their will, you need a grant of probate before you can access it. So if you're in a cohabiting relationship, it's even more important to think about what nest egg you have access to. It's your money. Now, marriages break up all the time, unfortunately. That's a reason to also think about, you know, we don't think we're, our marriage is going to break up when we get together and we're all in the throes of love, but they break up and they become, you know, quite, they can become quite hostile and they tend to become hostile. So again, you know, think about accumulating that money. So that, that money that you keep for yourself, think about building it up and accumulating it, not just spending it as it comes through. So this leads on to a really um, important topic to discuss, Neve. And I suppose that's what happens when somebody dies, what happens when your partner dies and you're not married or if you don't have a will or if you are cohabiting. Like, wh- where do you stand if you don't have a joint account and, you know, your partner has children from another relationship or, you know, what is your best, what, what do you do? You know, there's many, many different aspects in there. So uh, first of all, we'll start with the will, right? We should all have a will, a valid will. And if you don't have a will, right? And we'll say your partner who, um, for the sake of argument, let's say your partner who dies is the main breadwinner and has the main net worth in the household, right? In the absence of a will, if you are married or in a civil partnership, you have certain absolute rights, right? But you must seek a grant of probate. The revenue must approve this is the way the estate is to be divided. So if you are the spouse and you have children, your minimum right share is two thirds of the estate and the children get a third divided between them. This might sound great. Okay, I have two thirds of their estate and they're worth, you know, their estate is worth a million. But it becomes complicated because it's, it's just divided down. It's not saying I'm leaving the house to my spouse and I'm leaving my cash to my children or you might be able to access the assets that you need to support the family and if the children are minors it becomes complicated you might say right I'm going to sell my house my house is worth five million I'm going to sell it I know the children own third of it but I'm going to sell it then all of a sudden they're minors and it becomes complicated so first things first is you need a will now if you're in a relationship Gina that breaks up and then they unfortunately pass away. So it has to be marriage or civil partnership. And they have a will, but they haven't mentioned you in their will. You actually have a, a legal right share to a portion of that estate. So if you have children, your legal right share is a third of the estate. And if you don't have children, your legal right share is half of the estate. 
So again, it's the importance of a will. If you have a will and your marriage is breaking up, do a new will and mention them in their will and bequeath them something. Because because they're mentioned, so say you leave them a thousand euros, they don't have the right to come back for their legal right share because they're mentioned. So that's very important. If they were to pass, then any of their estate passes to you without capital acquisitions tax. So this is a tax of 33%. But if you're not in a civil partnership or married, you're actually deemed a stranger, a stranger in law to that person. And as a result, you pretty much anything over just over 16,000 is liable to inheritance tax at 33%. So if you can imagine you're in a great relationship with a great person, you're cohabiting, you've been cohabiting for 10 years, you have children, but all their assets are tied up in property and say they've rented property that yields 2,000 euros a month income and they were to pass and you get the family home as well. You have to pay tax at 33% on the benefit that you're deemed to get from them, right? So say if you were in the early throes of your relationship cohabiting with somebody and you wanted to buy a house with them, the best way to protect the mortgage. So a bank will make you take out mortgage protection. And the best way to take out mortgage protection is a life of another policy. So say you and I were in a relationship and we decided to buy a house for half a million and the mortgage was 400,000. I would insure your life for 400,000 and you would insure my life for 400,000. And if I was to die, because you paid into the premiums and you own the life policy, you get that 400,000 without incurring any tax on which you can clear the debt in its entirety. So that's just one very important thing. And then if you have children, you might decide we're also going to take out insurance that should we die, our children are protected. And again, you do a life of another policy. Now, if you're in a civil partnership or in a marriage, you take out a joint policy. And a joint policy will automatically pay to the beneficiary once the revenue has said, you know, you've got a grant of probate and you can just divide the estate as per the will or as per the rules of intestacy, it's called, if there is no will. And it automatically goes to the other person. So this is really interesting, should the marriage break up? So say you and I were married, our relationship breaks up and then I die. The joint policy, even though we're no longer together, the joint policy automatically goes to you. I could have another spouse, but that joint policy automatically goes to you. So, you know, if you think about a marriage breaking up, Gina, and, you know, there's there's a couple of children, young minor children. And as I said before, you know, we all enter into a marriage thinking this is going to be rosy and fabulous. And then our relationship breaks up and it becomes hostile. And maybe one person, unfortunately, struggles to meet maintenance payments. And so the upkeep of the family is solely reliant on one person, both financially and and from a supportive basis. So in that situation, it might be clever rather than to cancel a mortgage protection policy that you may have taken out before to retain that policy, keep paying the premiums so that should the other person die, you still get a lump sum to protect your family and you own that policy and you've been paying into that policy. So you could prove to revenue that you put all the money in and therefore it is a benefit from self to self. So it's just there are some interesting financial aspects to think about when a, when a marriage breaks up around life cover. 
Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a bit of a minefield. I suppose we we need to say that, you know, if people are looking for legal advice on creating a will, that they should seek independent legal advice from um, solicitor or barrister. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose the one other thing that while we're talking about people and marriages break down and, you know, if a partner to a marriage has children from another marriage, that is another added complication, I suppose, when um, somebody dies uh, with no will and it makes life very difficult for the children of the previous marriage, doesn't it? It it does and it doesn't. So they have a legal right right share. So in the absence of a will, so say there was two children to a first marriage and two children to a second marriage, third is divided equally between all children, right? So if there was two children of the current marriage, they would get one quarter of one sixth, one twenty-fourth of the estate. But yes, I think administering it though would become more complicated because you would need their sign off to dispose of any assets, for example, if it was just split exactly down the middle. So the top takeaway here is get your will written. They're so important. (laughs) And stay on top of it as well as your life changes. Now, will will be revoked by marriage, but it's not necessarily revoked by a separation or indeed divorce. You know, it needs to be it needs to be kept on top of And there are. I suppose it's, you know, as you say, talk to a lawyer, but there's some there's little tweaks to make sure that an ex-spouse doesn't come after your estate, you know, and a lawyer will advise you. That's brilliant. And I suppose it's something you wouldn't really think about. Obviously, you go into marriages with the best of intentions, but it's really important to have these these facts and this information um, at hand. Without a doubt. And we used to laugh at um, prenup arrangements. They're not really recognised in Ireland. But I suppose I do set precedence if if, it, if it's needed or, you know, share your thoughts on how you would like your will divided. So, Neve, we, we've talked about people, you know, marriages breaking down and people dying. So if your marriage breaks down and you are the stay at home parent and you don't have any financial independence, how are you fixed? Is your ex-partner still liable to support you? Um, now, I'm not a law expert, a family law expert, but it's my understanding that in a court under the court proceedings that will set the legal separation up, that a, a judge will set a, a maintenance requirement on the main earner. For example, imagine the stay-at-home person has no income in their own right and they have no assets in their own right. You know, if they were independently wealthy, it would be treated differently, but they have nothing in their own right. And then there's one big earner. So the big earner will most likely in that situation be required to pay court-ordered maintenance over to the family. Interestingly, from the, 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 the payer's point of view, so the person who's paying the maintenance, they can actually claim a tax deduction against that, but the person who's receiving it must pay income tax on it. Um, so that's important to note. But regularly, Gina, unfortunately, you know, as we keep saying, we enter into a relationship, we think it's going to be rosy and wonderful. We wouldn't enter into it if we thought otherwise. But when things break down, they can become hostile. And regularly, I would see that the the ex-spouse who is required to pay maintenance doesn't pay maintenance. Now, you can go back to court and you can you can push for the maintenance to be paid. But if there's no money there to pay it, you can't squeeze blood out of a stone. So one of the things that I would say, you know, we would regularly see um, in in a a marriage breakdown, we would regularly see people returning to work, right, to support the the family. 
I would recommend a lot of the time, now it's not a blanket recommendation because no two people are the same, but I would regularly recommend that, that the person who is supporting the family financially takes out income protection. Because if they're no longer able to work, they can't rely on a second income coming into the house anymore. They can't say, I'm out of work because I'm sick. I've I've put my back out. They need to be more self-sufficient. And indeed, even at our earliest stages of our career, income protection is a key thing that we should take out when we're younger. Life insurance is cheaper when we're younger. But in a marriage breakdown, you know, think about your will. Think about what sort of financial protections are in place should maintenance stop. Think about the career. Think about working your 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 working hours around your family. There's a lot to deal with, but it can be dealt with. That's it's a really interesting topic, Neve. Um, and I know money and relationships. You know, it's a difficult conversation to have with people. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your your insights with us. I, again, we we just need to say that if anybody is looking for financial or legal advice, that they do speak to an independent um, professional body. Uh, about getting their will or financial advice. If you like the Back to Work Connect podcast, you can find us at backtoworkconnect.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Back to Work Connect. I'm Gina Oglesby, and today we were with Neve DeBurka of Sparklands. We would like to thank our sponsors, Bank of Ireland and the Begin Together Fund, and the Community Foundation of Ireland for sponsoring this podcast series. <laughs>